If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. At Sephora, we know how you love to use makeup, skincare, hair care, and fragrances that work for you, but also how important it is to be in the know about the ingredients that are in them, which is why we created Clean at Sephora. Curated products from brands like Merit, Amica, Summer Fridays, and Fleur that have everything you want, minus certain ingredients you might not. Clean at Sephora is only at Sephora. Shop now at Sephora.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. As a plant-based cheese company, Dea has never talked about beef in an ad before because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Dea cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef. Because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Daya, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Daya Oat Cream Blend. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's interview is with Professor Jeremy Krang, a historian at the University of Edinburgh. Along with Paul Addison, who sadly died last year, Jeremy is the co-editor of The Spirit of the Blitz, Home Intelligence and British Morale, September 1940 to June 1941. This book compiles reports from the Ministry of Information, recording the morale of the British public during the height of the Blitz. A little while back, Jeremy spoke to BBC History Magazine editor Rob Attar about how the British public came to be monitored in this way and what the reports can tell us about the so-called Blitz spirit. So first of all, Jeremy, your book compiles home intelligence reports. For those of our listeners who may not have heard of the Home Intelligence Unit, can you please explain what it was and how it came about? Yes. um, I mean, just by way of background, during the... Uh, the Second World War, the morale of the British people was uh, clandestinely monitored by home intelligence. Um, This was a unit of the Ministry of Information that kept watch on the behaviour and the attitudes um, of the public. Now, intelligence from a wide range of sources 
and from every region of the United Kingdom was collected and it was analysed by a small um, team of officials in this home intelligence unit. And uh, this was this unit was based in the uh, the Senate House at the University of London, and this team compiled um, regular reports on the state of popular morale. And these reports were issued uh, daily from May to September of 1940, and then weekly thereafter, right through until Home Intelligence closed down in um, December 1944. I mean, how this unit came about is an interesting story. Would you like me to tell you that story? Or Yes, I'd um, love to know, yes. Well, I guess in the 21st century, we, in a way, take it for granted that, um, that we're under continuous surveillance, um, whether it's through um, opinion surveys or through um, uh, uh, pollsters, market researchers, uh, internet search engines, social media, and so on. And, of course, trends in opinion and lifestyles are monitored, you know, 24 hours a day. But, of course, the situation in 1939 was very different. And the political classes relied mainly on the press, um, which was a highly unreliable source as a guide to, to public opinion. However, when a Ministry of Information was created in Britain at the outbreak of the war to help maintain morale, it was decided that it needed its own independent source of intelligence on popular attitudes and behaviour. So the the Home Intelligence Unit was created, and this had a cast of uh, colourful and um, unconventional characters, if you could put it that way. The unit was set up under Mary Adams. Now, Mary Adams was one of the many temporary wartime civil servants whose uh, recruitment into Whitehall introduced um, an unorthodox element um, into the the pre-war establishment. Um, And if you think about it, the the archetypal senior civil servant was male, um, upper middle class, ex-public school, ex-Oxbridge, graduate in the humanities. Mary Adams was very different. Um, She's a scholarship girl um, from a modest background, graduate in botany from the University of Cardiff. And before the war, she'd been the the first uh, female BBC television producer. She'd been broadcasting from Alexandra Palace. But when this service was closed down, she was free to, to take on a new challenge. And she found it in home intelligence. And she assembled, uh, as I say, a a cast of interesting staff members. One of Adams's early recruits to the home intelligence unit was the artist, Nicholas Bentley. Um, He'd drawn illustrations for the books of humorous authors, such as uh, J.B. Morton, the Daily Express. Uh, Another uh, Adams recruit was the poet and writer... Winifred Holmes, who was part of a literary circle that included um, T.S. Eliot, W.H. Auden, Christopher Isherwood. However, in order to uh, perhaps balance the artistic abilities of Bentley and Holmes with a more scientific mind, she also recruited uh, Stephen Taylor. Um, He was later to become 
Labour MP, Lord Taylor, and uh, he was a psychiatrist um, whom she invited onto the radio during her time as a talks producer at the BBC, and Taylor was subsequently to take over from um, Adams as head of home intelligence in the spring of 1941. So that's a sort of summary of, of how it came into being and, and, and who the, 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 key, the key players were. And so what kind of sources did Home Intelligence draw on to make its reports? Well, Home Intelligence was founded on the assumption that no uh, single source could be relied upon uh, as an accurate measure and morale. And so Adams drew on a a wide range of sources. Uh, These included reports from the Ministry of Information's own regional Officers across the United Kingdom, there were 13 Ministry of Information regions. There were reports that came in from the wartime social survey, from the postal and telegraph censors, um, from chief constables, from the BBC's listener research department, uh, from voluntary organisations such as the Women's Institute, uh, the Citizens Advice Bureau, and... uh, also from um, the managers of Odeon cinemas, presumably on audience reactions to newsreels, and um, also from the railway station bookstalls of WH Smith and Sons. Presumably, this was uh, reports on these were reports on commuters' conversations on station platforms. But perhaps the most important of home intelligence sources at this time was the social research organisation Mass Observation. Now, this was led by um, Tom Harrison, who Adams knew from her work at the BBC uh, before the war. Harrison uh, was a a buccaneering, um, self-taught social anthropologist. He dropped out of Cambridge University when he was a student and he'd embarked on uh, a life of adventure. And this is at a time time when um, other young men of his background were perhaps making a career for themselves in the army um, or, or the city of London. He was uh, taking part in expeditions to the South Seas. Uh, now, in the late 1930s, he co-founded Maps Observation with the aim of creating a social anthropology of the British people. They were observing um, the British people as though they were some sort of hitherto hitherto unknown tribe. Now, mass observation had had at its disposal a nationwide panel of volunteers, and these volunteers responded by post to requests for their observations and their opinions. But they also employed a team of full-time paid observers, And these paid observers conducted interviews in the street, watched people's behaviour, and they eavesdropped on their conversations and and regarded their, recorded their unguarded remarks. These were known as overheards. So that's, those those are the the major sources that uh, Mary Adams and Home Intelligence had at their disposal. And do we know how they gauged the veracity of these different sources, how reliable they felt they were? Like all historical sources, these reports have their problems, um, and the methods by which intelligence was collected uh, was often unscientific. 
the the quality of judgments um, of the data that were that were, that were made by Adams and her staff were inevitably subjective. I think what she tried to do was um, create a balance. The mass observation uh, reports that were coming in were were um, invariably impressionistic, and she tried to counter that with um, uh, uh, a more statistical source, um, and she used. Um, wartime social survey uh, um, for, for that purpose. So she did try and balance things. Um, there are issues in, in the sense that working class views, of course, were, were for the most part reported indirectly through the medium of uh, middle class informants. So uh, aspects of the, of, of the truth uh, may have been lost in, the, in that process. Um, so there are um, there are some issues, but I think, nevertheless, with these reservations in mind, um, their methods were transparent. Um, they were evidence based, uh, and you know, there is a reference apparatus that that comes with these reports. We've not been able to include it with with the reports in the book, but we've given samples in certain reports of that reference apparatus. And also the reports are, I think, uh, reflective of the fact that public opinion was never monolithic and that uh, there was a diversity of viewpoints. So whatever their limitations, uh, I think the reports are probably the closest we're ever likely to to get to the truth about morale and public opinion in, in wartime Britain. And so what, what do the reports actually tell us about the experience of the bombs falling themselves? Well, obviously, the experience of the bombing itself feature very heavily in the reports. Um, the mass bombing of civilians posed, or, or, or so it was um, thought, the greatest of all threats to morale. Um, some f- officials actually had predicted a bloodbath of of about 600,000 deaths in the first 60 days, which gives you um, a feeling for for the, the, the threat level they thought was there. And Home Intelligence reported in detail on the complex reaction of civilians uh, under the bombs and also reported on the, the many complaints that were being levelled at the inefficiency of local authorities, um, the lack of provision for the homeless, the poor quality of air raid shelters, the confusing character of air raid warnings, and so on. Now, Home Intelligence recorded that the first few days of the Blitz on London gave rise to shock uh, amongst all classes and all districts. Um, and in the eye of this storm, the people of the Docklands, who, of course, bore the brunt of the attack, showed what was described as visible signs of nerve cracking from constant ordeals. But having said that, there was no mass panic, there was no breakdown of public order, no collapse of morale, and nor did it collapse in any of the other towns and cities that were bombed by the Luftwaffe. Beyond this point, however, it's difficult, I think, to generalise about the impact of the Blitz from the reports. Um, As Home Intelligence uh, discovered, the reactions to the Blitz 
uh, varied um, and, and depended on a range of factors, factors such as the resilience of individuals, uh, the pattern and intensity of the raids, the size and topography of the cities um, attacked, and special reports which are included um, among the home intelligence materials, special reports on particular localities like Coventry, Clybank, Plymouth, Portsmouth, Hull, Merseyside. I think these show the uh, how the, the impact of the bombing vary, varied and could vary from place to place. And in fact, levels of morale could vary between one part of town and another. In the case of Hull, uh, which suffered heavy raids in March 1941, the report painted a very sombre picture of uh, the St Paul's district of the city, where the immediate post-raid reaction was described as complete helplessness and resignation. And this was uh, attributed to poor social conditions, poverty and bad housing in this particular area. The North Hull estate in the city, by contrast, seemed to cope much better. And in Home Intelligence's words, gave a remarkable demonstration of high morale. We can frankly state that in not one single case did we see any undue fear or weakening of morale. Now, whilst, whilst Home Intelligence... Uh, acknowledged the great resilience of the majority of those in the Blitz towns and, I, and, I, and the extraordinary uh, capacity of people to adjust to the to Blitz conditions. It did, however, also uncover some uncomfortable truths about uh, life under the bombs. So, for example, a report in May on conditions in Portsmouth revealed a, a worrying level of uh, bomb-related crime. On all sides, it was reported, we heard that looting and wanton destruction had reached alarming proportions. The police seem unable to exercise control. And we heard many tales of the wreckage of shelters and of stealing from damaged houses and were told that some people were afraid to take shelter in an attack for fear of being robbed of their remaining possessions. The effect on morale is bad and there is a general feeling of desperation as there seems to be no solution. Naturally, um, the bombing of Britain, Britain's civilians also, of course, gave rise to demands for reprisal raids against uh, Germany. Now, in the early stages of the Blitz, uh, this seemed to emanate, emanate mainly from parts of Britain that had not actually uh, experienced bombing. Uh, but as the Blitz went on, the demand for reprisals uh, increased and spread across the country. Um, as an example, in December, Home Intelligence reported that it is again suggested that the time has come to stop the slogan Britain can take it. The public is now more concerned about giving it. And in March, Home Intelligence was warned that our bombing policy is described as flabby. More and more, it is being suggested that we should lay off military objectives for a few nights and instead annihilate one or more German towns, preferably Berlin. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, this quest of vengeance was counterbalanced by small acts of compassion. Um, at Barking in London, it was reported that when some German airmen were buried, a woman put a wreath on a coffin inscribed with the words, to some mother's son. 
and the crowd, Home Intelligence noted, show no hostile feeling at this action and appear rather to approve. And and then bearing in mind the fact that clearly there was a divergence in views, but what overall impression of Britain during the Blitz do we get from these reports? What the book and what the reports do, I think, is help us to further strip away some of the nostalgia that has grown up uh, around this period, the Blitz period. Whilst there's no doubting the... uh, the courage and the resilience of the British people, and this comes out clearly in the reports. The reports also, though, remind us of, of the sufferings and the sacrifices, the, the many frustrations and difficulties of daily life, the, the numerous grumbles and the grievances and the tensions, and the determination of the overwhelming majority just to put up with it all for the sake of beating Hitler. So I guess it's collective stoicism rather than patriotic fervour that was perhaps the prevailing spirit of the Blitz. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. In April, it was noted that the Dutch were extremely popular, but their virility was causing serious trouble in Falmouth. And in the same month, It was said that the public was eager for guidance as to whether it was unpatriotic for housewives to pickle eggs. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viori, V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Now, we hear a lot at the moment, actually, and partly in light of the coronavirus pandemic. There's a lot of comparisons to the so-called blitz spirit. But to what extent does the evidence that is covered in your book support or go against that idea? Well, There are perhaps some um, loose parallels um, between the pandemic and the Blitz. Um, There's the sense of national crisis, um, the sense of solidarity and acts of kindness um, that we witnessed in our own communities and uh, took place during the Blitz. Also, I think the recognition of how important our key workers um, are and were then. Um, Also, it's interesting that uh, during the Blitz, the authorities actually encouraged people to wear um, masks in air raid shelters um, to stop the spread of of winter viruses and and so on and diseases. And there was a, you know, but there was a a public health concern in relation to to air raid shelters. But having said that, I'm, I'm not sure we can we can push the comparisons too far. I mean, COVID is is not the Luftwaffe. Um, ventilators are, are not spitfires. And for all the terrible things that COVID has done, um, it has not reduced people's houses to, to, to rubble. Um, and also, um, the Blitz spirit, which you mentioned, um, which the reaction to the virus has been compared with, 
That blitz spirit was, I think, as this book demonstrates and as the reports show, it was a much more it's much more complex than we are sometimes led to believe. So um, I think there are some parallels, but I don't think you can push this too far. And you've talked about the fact that the the responses to these um, these events varied. I wonder to what extent responses to the Blitz varied from city to city, particularly those that experienced the bombing much worse and also perhaps those that didn't experience it at all. I mean, in the in the early stages of the Blitz, the reports were organised and laid out regionally. So readers can trace what the particular concerns were in each in each region. But then later on in the Blitz, the reports are organised thematically, so it's a bit more difficult to make regional comparisons. I mean, certainly in the early weeks of the Blitz, London was very much the focus um, of the attacks. I mean, we've got to remember that London was bombed for 57 nights in a row. Um, So in this period, the regions were very closely watching events in the South and worrying about their own air raid precautions in in their localities. But when the Blitz spread to cities across the United Kingdom, of course, all the regions were then facing the same threat. Um, But of course, there were also many issues beyond the bombing that were also applicable right across the country, um, such as rationing, evacuation, um, war work, taxation. And of course, everyone also across the country was um, had an interest in the military progress of the war overseas, and they were uh, monitoring that quite closely as well. So yeah, that'll be interesting actually coming on to that. I mean, I realise there's quite a big focus on the Blitz in your book, but what can the reports tell us about other aspects of the British Home Front? Well, whilst the um, the Blitz remained a constant um, theme of the reports, um, it's interesting that uh, as the months passed, it actually ceased to be the dominant um, theme and, I mean, the bombing offensive continued to kill, it continued to destroy, but it came to be seen as a failed strategy. And um, Home Intelligence noted in January, and I quote, um, reports continue to point out that heavy raids increase rather than diminish the determination of the people in the Blitz town. And also, of course, as I was just saying a moment ago, um, th- much of the time, of course, pe- most people were not being bombed and um and a small town in rural britain uh rarely witnessed an air raid of course meanwhile there were other topics that clamored for attention and one report noted that uh, in in telephone conversations the blitz seems to assume much the same level as the weather and and indeed the bombing was not the only factor that that uh, that was determining morale and uh the task of assessing public attitudes, public behaviour, of course, gave home intelligence uh, a mandate to inquire across the entire home front. And uh, so the reports do range far and wide across domestic matters. Um, Practical concerns um, like rationing, um, evacuation, uh, war work, childcare, taxation, uh, public transport, even rat catching. Um, all feature in these in these reports. In particular, food rationing uh, became a pressing issue as the war uh, as war conditions tightened. 
uh, in March, Home Intelligence listed no fewer than eight food flashpoints. Um, and amongst these complaints were um, unfairness, perceived unfairness in the rations between uh, heavy, uh, heavy workers and heavy industry and the armed forces, um, complaints about the opportunities for evacuees in safe areas with time on their hands to obtain more uh, off-the-ration goods to local residents, also complaints about um, back-of-the-shop um, sales for favoured customers. Um, and, of course, shortages were also uh, uh, a frequent problem, and one of the consequences of shortages was long queues. And in, in February, um, five mayors of towns in the Midlands uh, declared that few queues were a bigger menace to public morale than several uh, serious German air raids. So the reports cover a lot of um, material problems, but mentalities, if, if I could use that uh, word, also investigated. So the reports cover such concerns as anti-war feeling, anti-Semitism, um, and attitudes towards foreign nationalities. Uh, and in this, in this regard, home intelligence seems to have been particularly sensitive to communist infiltration. Uh, into the industrial regions of Britain. There's a, a report on Scottish miners in May, and this records a deep-seated hostility um, towards the owners of the pits, and it warns that the communists were working hard at exploiting these sort of grievances. And uh, it, 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 it points out that, that, that uh, not only uh, were they successful in confirming and rendering articulate the miners' distrust of the owner class and in spreading cynicism about the war. But the report goes on to state that uh, some of the younger and more reckless miners were, and I quote, much more bitter against the class enemy than against the Nazis. And what can the reports tell us about the progress of the war more broadly? Well, beyond the, beyond the home front... Um, Intelligence also monitored public reaction, reactions to the wider events of the war, and in particular, the, the military fortunes of the uh, British, um, as the pendulum was swinging between victory and defeat uh, during this period. The reports um, thus cover familiar military campaigns, such as uh, those in the, the North African desert, but they're also informative on much less well-known military operations, such as the campaign against the Italian Empire in uh, in East Africa, the British intervention in Iraq, and uh, the British invasion of Syria and Lebanon uh, during this period. Now, I mean, despite the the ravages of the Blitz, the the early months of 1941 appear to have been a time of, of optimism uh, about the progress of the war, uh, in January, it was observed that a wide, there was a widespread belief that victory would be achieved that year. And the prospect of a German invasion of Britain was, was seen as a sort of thrilling kind of game. Um, people, it was noted, are impatient, impatient at the delay. They talk of fighting with any weapon which comes to hand kettles of hot water, shotguns, etc. And they boast that every German will be cut to pieces. 
nevertheless, having said that, of course, any British uh, euphoria was very much tempered by the knowledge that the main enemy, Germany, had had yet to be defeated. And with the arrival of General Rommel's Africa Corps in North Africa, this led to a swift uh, reversal of fortunes, and the British had to retreat back to the frontiers of Egypt. Um, And um, home intelligence picked up on this. Um, Some are saying, uh, it was noted in April, uh, that whenever we meet the Italians, we advance, but whenever we meet the Germans, we retreat. And the British, uh, the British evacuation from Crete in May um, confirmed this and, 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 and brought, a, brought about a, a further decline in confidence. Our reports um, end um, with the news of the German invasion of um, the Soviet Union in, in June with Operation Barbarossa. And it's interesting that this was greeted with mixed feelings. Some thought that the Russians would uh, soon be defeated, then the Germans would be free to turn their their full might uh, onto Britain. Others thought that if the Russians could just just hold out, this would have a weakening effect uh, on the Germans and thus might well shorten the war. Um, But people do seem to have been a bit confused, and there were certainly mixed feelings about um, this event. Uh, Opinions on the war in Russia, it was recorded, ranged from extreme reserve to complacent optimism. And do we know whether these reports caused concern among the authorities, or did they even actually reassure them about the morale of Britain? Well... (sighs) In yes, there, there were uh, concerns. And when we look at this in retrospect, home intelligence can be seen as as, a, as as quite a bold and imaginative exercise in bridging the gap between the machinery of government and the people. And I think it's also a recognition that the state could not effectively influence public opinion without monitoring it. Yet, having said that, as the uh, the introduction to the book, I think, reveals in articulating um, popular complaints against the authorities, it made enemies in Whitehall, uh, enemies who tried to curtail its activities. And in particular, its relationship with the Home Office was very fractious. And the ministry, that ministry was never quite able to understand, I think, that, that when the when Home Intelligence reports complained about let's say, uh, shortcomings in civil defence measures. They were not dealing in authenticated fact about these measures, but they were dealing in popular perceptions of these measures. And you can get a sense of Adams's frustration in her letters to, to colleagues and, and friends at this time. Uh, she complained of departmental jealousy, um, of a, of a staggering sensitivity to criticism and a terrific pressure to say that morale was splendid and that everything was fine. Um, just an example. Everyone, she wrote, is frightened of the work of our department, regarded with suspicion, and many senior civil servants do their utmost to bring about a standstill. I didn't tell you that techniques of social research are so little understood and I might add so little authenticated that ignorance, misunderstanding, 
and suspicion abound. I mean, thankfully, though, home intelligence survived the assaults of the bureaucrats who did not understand or perhaps didn't wish to understand the value of its work. And it bequeathed us a a collection of reports that in some ways read like the collective diary of a nation. And you, you said there that the bureaucrats were potentially quite hostile to home intelligence. So actually during the war itself, were many actions taken as a result of the information coming from these reports? Well, curiously enough, um, during the Blitz period, probably not. Um, early in the Blitz, these reports were being circulated by Mary Adams uh, around Whitehall at her discretion. But uh, as a result of some of the um, hostility that um, I was just referring to, uh, it was decreed that uh, they should only be circulated internally in the ministry. When Stephen Taylor took over uh, in 1941, he managed to um, to get them uh, uh, circulated more widely. But, But... for, for much of the Blitz period, they weren't being circulated. And that was, um, uh, in a sense, a shame because some of the ministries that uh, might have found them very useful were not um, receiving them. But of course, it's nevertheless, it's, it's, this is from a historical point of view as historians, we're very glad that they still compiled them um, so we can, uh, we, can, we, can, we can look at them today. Now, clearly, this reporting took place at a time of great danger and hardship. But do any more light-hearted stories emerge from your research into them? Yes. I mean, although the reports um, deal with very serious subjects, um, there are, I think, more light-hearted moments. Um, the monitoring um, of rumours was a function of home intelligence. And this threw up some improbable tales. Um uh, apart from the usual uh, rumours about bomb damage, casualties, and uh, so on, uh, stories circulated, for example, um, about prominent musicians being imprisoned for uh, signalling to the Germans through broadcast dance tunes, um, of German paratroopers dressed as women landing for some reason uh, in Skegness, and of... Uh, the Luftwaffe, blitzing towns where cinemas were were showing Charlie Chaplin's comic film, The Great Dictator, which, of course, is a parody of Hitler and Mussolini. Um, and indeed, there is, a, I think, a, a touch of the quirky in some of the reports. Um, in December, it was stated that the wife of a German embassy official in neutral Ireland had won a fur coat in a raffle for the RAF Spitfire Fund. Um, in April, um, it was noted that the Dutch were extremely popular, but their virility was causing serious trouble in Falmouth. And in the same month, um, it was said that the public was eager for guidance as to whether it was unpatriotic for housewives to pickle eggs. From the evidence that they gathered, did the Home Intelligence Unit try to draw any lessons about the character of the British people? Yes, they did. Um The analysis of morale inevitably led home intelligence into um, assessments of the character or or what we might now term the the national identity of the British people. And um, after the Blitz, 
had petered out, Stephen Taylor made an assessment of uh, national character traits. And we write about this in the introduction. Um, The British, he thought, were pragmatic, um, full of common sense, and had a stability of temperament, um, albeit with what he described as a slightly gloomy tinge. But he thought they also had a tendency um, towards self-righteous indignation when things went wrong, a propensity to regard all officialdom as utterly inefficient, and a distrust of excessive enthusiasm, combined with a masochistic delight in knowing the worst. He also thought that the British people were fundamentally unimaginative, since uh, despite their perilous position that they were in, uh, he writes that the possibility of defeat is neither imagined nor imaginable. In fact, he, he thought that it would be impossible to defeat the people of Britain by any means other than extermination. And that in a, in a strange way, the public as a whole was happier since the war than it had been in the time of peace. That was Jeremy Quang. The Spirit of the Blitz, Home Intelligence and British Morale, September 1940 to June 41, which was co-edited with Paul Addison, is out now published by Oxford University Press. You can find a link to purchase it in the description of this podcast. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for a look at how Carrie Grant went from humble beginnings to Hollywood icon. <laughs>